When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Hi and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host Mike Cheatham and this is episode number 30 It's May the 1st, 2021 And the title of the podcast this week is How It All Ends, The End of Civilization as We Know It. And once I um, get into the agenda, I will uh, give a little more detail about what we're going to talk about. So uh, first of all, I just want to go through that agenda. Initially, we'll go through feedback. Um, I did uh, have a conversation with James uh, this week, he did provide some uh, feedback, though not necessarily specific to the content of any of the episodes, but I'll go through some of the things that we talked about. After that, we'll go through the segment, What's on My Mind, and uh, that is the same as the title this week, uh, which is How It All Ends. And it's really my take on uh, the end of our civilization. So, uh, history tells us that in, that all civilizations have had an end date. Um, some of them have been uh, resurrected and others have not. And I'll just go into where I see um, us, uh, i.e. the um, uh, United States of America, in that timeline and what it means for the rest of the world. After that, we're going to go through news. Uh, first up on uh, news this week um, is that the suspects in Am- uh, Ahmad Arbery's shooting death are also indicted on federal hate crime charges. And so we'll go through what that means. Uh, next, we'll go through uh, a bit about Biden's uh, first uh, address to the joint houses of Congress, uh, just to give you an update both on uh, generally what he had to say, and also the rebuttal from the Republicans. Uh, after that, I want to go through a story um, where the family of Andrew Brown, who was killed by the police, viewed a uh, excerpt from the body cam video, and according to them, it shows that he was killed, quote, execution style, end quote. After that, we're going to go through the death of uh, Marvin David Scott that has been uh, ruled a homicide. And again, uh, these are stories about the continuing saga of uh, police uh, killing mostly unarmed black men. Uh, 
after that, we'll give an update um, on the coronavirus uh, statistics, and we'll end out uh, or close out the news uh, with the discussion of a, a, a DC pastor uh, who has uh, Washington DC, that is, who has been accused of fraud. Uh, after the news, we'll get to the segment, uh, This Shit is for Us. And what I want to talk about is in that segment is the fact that the new Republican attack on, quote, woke, unquote, culture uh, has racist roots and is uh, essentially just an extension of their racist ideology. After that, we'll go through um, the um, uh, one-minute Bible study with Atheist Mike. And the text that we're going to take today for that is when God says, fuck a bitch, he means follow through. Uh, after that, uh, we'll close out the podcast. And this week, uh, we're going to close out with a story that's actually about a month old, so it's not that timely. But I wanted to just um, acknowledge that a Nigerian-American had uh, joined the Biden cabinet about a month ago, and that was uh, his, an, a historical event. So that's what we have on the agenda for this week. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll go through feedback. So let's get to feedback. Now, before we start with feedback, one of the things I want to note is I am afraid that this um, episode of The Rational Black Thought is going to run long. Uh, I have 21 pages of notes uh, in the past. I would have 12 to 14, uh, and it's been trending up. Uh, I had about 16 last week. So with 21 pages, I'm not sure how quickly I can get through this, but I'll do my best. Um, as it relates to listener feedback, I had a phone conversation with James this week. Um, we talked about a lot of things, not necessarily um, specific to the uh, the past podcast, though James did say that he was happy that Kenneth, uh, if you'll note, uh, if you'll remember, I had mentioned that Kenneth had said that he would like for James to come back and uh, continue with providing feedback, and James had said that uh, he really agreed with Kenneth on that point. That um, uh, that his feedback is um, very, very um, uh, beneficial uh, to the podcast and to me. So um, uh, I think uh, uh, James is just um, uh, agreeing with those who agree with him, but um, uh, that's a a tendency that we all have. So I'm not going to uh, slight him much for that. James is also in the process of doing some research on another individual that he feels was a primary cause uh, or of the creation of the ideology of white supremacy. He had mentioned uh, that um, uh, the other individual um, that we had talked about, he had thought that uh, that individual was from the uh, mid-18th uh, century, but it was the 19th, so he's looking for someone else that he believes uh, started in the 18th century, i.e. in the 1700s. So once I get that info from James, I will bring it back and uh, provide it on the podcast. 
James also had a discussion with me just on a on a family issue, which I'm not going to get into the details because I don't really want to uh, to disclose that. But um, it was primarily about a relative that had a medical issue, and instead of seeking help, uh, they had relied on God until the and until it was almost too late to do anything. So. James was a bit angry about that because, uh, but because he loves his family member, he didn't want to say uh, how he felt to them, but he knew he could uh, contact me and vent, and he knew that I would understand, and I do. Um, I have um, had some uh, similar experiences myself. Um, one of my sisters is refusing to get uh, her second COVID uh, vaccination. Uh, because she believes that uh, it is uh, showing a lack of faith in God. Uh, and also this week, uh, one of my nephews um, went into cardiac arrest while having uh, somewhat minor surgery. And of course, um, when my sister sent out that note about her son, uh, uh, all of the family talked about how they were praying for him. And when she had said that he had uh, regained consciousness and uh, was on the road to recovery, uh, they were all thanking God, which completely fucking pissed me off. But uh, as I told my sister, I wasn't going to comment on the family thread. Uh, I just uh, told her that um, I was uh, happy that um, uh, that her son, my nephew, was recovering, but uh, that I didn't think it had anything to do with prayer or, or uh, any of the other family members' imaginary friend that they like to talk to. Uh, she did say that my term imaginary friend made her laugh, so I was glad to bring some levity uh, to that situation. So that's actually it for feedback this week. And if you have feedback on this episode or any of the prior episodes or just in general, you can provide feedback to me by sending me an email to the email address feedback at rationalblackthought.com. Again, that is feedback at rationalblackthought.com. All right, uh, we'll take a, another break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, uh, What's on My Mind? Welcome back. So the way that I came to select this topic um, for uh, this week uh, is it started with my conversation with Kenneth. And if you'll remember in last week's episode, I had talked about that and that Kenneth was not optimistic about us ever being able to remove racial bias from the world um, and and uh, let alone in, in, in law enforcement, but from the world in general. And that started me to think about where we end up if we keep going in the direction that we're going. In addition, uh, in my opinion, in every area of significance, whether it's race relations, politics, religion, etc., we seem to be going in the wrong direction. Uh, I, I think that there are some, some uh, outliers to that. For example, the number of people that... Um, uh, identify as belonging to a church is dropping, uh, and the number of people that say they have no religious affiliate, affiliation is growing. So I, I think that's in the right direction. But I believe that what we are 
seen in opposition to to that trend as an example and what we're seeing in in other examples is the last gasp of a dying society um so that's that's what i wanted to to talk about and in addition many so-called prophets mostly christian talk about the end of the world and though they um all in, from the very beginning, that is, those individuals that, that wrote the Bible uh, up to this very day, though they all thought that the end of the world would happen in their lifetimes, and of course it didn't, um, and also the fact that it's based on a nonsensical story in the book of Revelation, which we reviewed a couple of episodes ago, there there is a history about the death of civilizations. And in my opinion, the key components that contributed to the death of prior civilizations are in play today. And that's what I wanted to talk about. It is that every single civilization in the past seems to have had an expiration date. Uh, we seem to think that the civilization that we live in now will go on forever. But uh, if we do research and an analysis of how past civilizations died, I think we can see many of the underlying uh, contributors to that death playing out in a society today. Now, I don't believe uh, that the current uh, approach to climate, justice, race relations, etc., is sustainable. Uh, and I believe that if we don't change, this so-called Great American Experiment will end. Uh, the difference now is that I believe the death of America will also be the death of all other current civilizations, and I'll get into some details of why I think that is the case. And so I feel like we're on the precipice of a global dark ages. This plunges us all into a subservient or, or subsistence, rather, level of existence. And I reviewed a couple of articles on this topic, and I'll just go through now to review the salient points and provide my commentary. So one of the articles starts out that great civilizations are not murdered. Instead, they take their own lives. And that uh, was the conclusion of Arnold Tonaby in his 12-volume uh, study of history. It's an exploration of the rise and fall of 28 different civilizations. And the author of this article goes on to say he was right. In some respects, civilizations are often responsible for their own decline. However, their self-destruction is usually assisted. The Roman Empire, for example, was the victim of many ills, including overexpansion, climate change, environmental degradation, and poor leadership. But it was also brought to its knees when Rome was sacked by the Visigoths in four in 410 and the Vandals in 455. Collapse is often quick and greatness provides no immunity. And the author goes on to note that the Roman Empire covered 4.4 million square kilometers in 390 uh, and, um, AD, and five years later it had plummeted to 2 million, less than uh, by almost half, uh, by 476. Or uh, by 390, rather, and by 476, it was zero. So there was no Roman Empire by 476. So the collapse was, relatively speaking, fast. And the author goes on to say that our deep past is marked by recurring failure. As part of his research uh, at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, 
he was attempting to find out why collapse occurs through um, an historical autopsy. And um, what can the rise and fall of a, a historic civilization tell us about our own was a question that he was trying to answer. What are the forces that uh, precipitate or delay um, a, a collapse? And do we see similar patterns today? And I think the answer to that last question, which we'll get to, is going to be yes. Now, the author goes on to say the first way to look at past civilization is to compare their longevity. Longevity, And this can be difficult because there's no strict definition of civilization, nor an overall arching database of their births and deaths. The author presents a graphic um, that compared the lifespan of various civilizations, which he defined as a society with agricultural uh, multiple cities, military dominance in its geographical region, and a continuous political structure. And given that definition, all empires are civilization, but not all civilizations are empire. And the data that he showed was drawn from two studies on the growth and decline of empires uh, for 3000 um, uh, to uh, 600 B.C. and from 600 B.C. Uh, to 600 A.D., um, and it, so in that, uh, he had shown that the average uh, duration of a civilization was uh, about uh, 380 years or so. So it, he went on to say that the collapse can be defined as a rapid and enduring loss of population, identity, and economic complexity. Public services crumble and disorder ensues as government loses control of its monopoly on violence. And, and I think that that's a good way to, to, to phrase it because governments are violent and, but they generally have a monopoly on violence and they stop everyone else from being violent. And I think that we're beginning to, to see now that there is a push against the government's monopoly on violence. And I think that that is going to be exacerbated over the coming uh, years and, and decades. Now, the author goes on to say that virtually all past civilizations have faced this fate. Some recovered or transformed, such as the Chinese and Egyptian. Others collapsed. Other collapses were permanent, as was the case with Easter Island uh, and uh, the Mayans. And sometimes the cities at their epicenter collapse and are revived, as was the case with Rome, or in other cases, like the Mayan ruins, they are left abandoned as mausoleums for future tourists. So he, the author asked the question, what can this tell us about the future of global modern civilization? Are the lessons of Agarian uh, empires applicable to our post-18th century period of industrial capitalism? And of course, I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, and uh, he said that also that he would argue that they are. Societies of the past and present are just complex systems composed of people and technology. The theory of, uh, quote, normal accidents, end quote, suggests that complex technolo technological systems regularly give way to failure, so collapse may be a normal phenomenon for civilizations, regardless of their size and stage. If the fate of previous civilizations can be around a roadmap to our future, what does it say? One method is to examine the trends that preceded historical collapse and see how they are unfolding today. 
Now, he goes on to say that while there is no single accepted theory of why collapses happen, historians, anthropologists, and others have proposed various explanations, including the following. Climactic change. When climate stability changes, the results can be disastrous, resulting in crop failure, starvation, and de uh, uh, desertification. The collapse of the Anasi and the Tonaka civilizations, uh, the Akkadians, the Mayan, the Roman Empire, and many others have all coincided with abrupt climatic, climatic changes, usually droughts. And I think that all of the research research shows now that we are in an unprecedented or are experiencing an unprecedented level of climatic change. Also, next is environmental degradation. Collapses can occur when societies overshoot the carrying capacity of their environment. This ecological collapse theory, which has been the subject of best-selling books, points to excessive deforestation, water pollution, soil degradation, and the loss of biodiversity as precipitating the causes. And our current uh, burning of the Amazon and clearing of the Amazon, uh, the uh, the polluting of uh, oceans, uh, lakes, rivers, and streams, the um, extinction of several species, all points to environmental degradation, as along with the climatic, change, uh, climatic changes that are coming about because of the depletion of the ozone layer and other, uh, other issues. Next is inequality and oligarchy, which um, is about wealth and political inequality, uh, and that can be a central driver of social disintegration uh, as well. And I think that what we have been seeing recently certainly points to the fact that inequality is growing, and uh, I believe that we are reaching a level where the people will no longer be willing to sit by and and hear the words that this inequality is going to be addressed by fucking trickle-down economics or, or some other bullshit uh, that is coming out. It's getting to a point where people are going to take it to the streets and be willing to fight to try to get uh, equality, but that is also one of the things that can lead to the collapse of a society. Uh, the next thing is the next thing that the author mentions is complexity. Collapse um, experts and historian Joseph Tainter has proposed that societies eventually collapse under the weight of their own accumulated complexity and bureaucracy. The societies are problem-solving collectives. They grow in complexity in order to overcome new issues. However, the returns from complexity eventually reach a point of diminishing returns. After this point, collapse will eventually ensue. And uh, the author goes on to say another measure of increasing complexity is called energy return on investment, or, or, or EROI. This refers to the ratio between the amount of energy produced by a resource relative to the energy needed to obtain it. Like complexity, EROI appears to have a point of diminishing returns. In his book, The Upside of Down, the political scientist Thomas Homer Dixon observed that environmental degradation throughout the Roman Empire led to falling EROI from their stable energy sources, crops, wheat, and alfalfa, the empire fell alongside their EROI. 
Tainer also blames it as a chief culprit in the collapse, including for the Mayan. So one of the other factors that they mention is external shocks. In other words, the four horsemen, war, natural disasters, famine, and plagues. Uh, the Aztec Empire, for example, was brought to an end by Spanish invaders. Most early agrarian states were fleeting due to deadly uh, um, uh, epidemic, epidemics and the concentration of humans and cattle in walled settlements with poor hygiene made disease outbreaks unavoidable, unavoidable and catastrophic. Uh, now, the, if we look at it now uh, with the co with COVID nineteen and the almost uh, six hundred thousand deaths that have occurred just in the U.S. on for that, uh, and the fact that uh, the that that was just a recent uh, example of uh, Corona type viruses, uh, it seems likely that uh, not just uh, epidemics but pandemics are likely to be in our future. And quite frankly, I don't think we've learned a fucking thing about how to deal with them. Uh, uh, we were able to rapidly develop the vaccine, but uh, there's a lot of fucking uh, vaccine nuts who are refusing to get vaccinated. Uh, and therefore, I think that the there is a high likelihood that not only will there be, be mutations of COVID-19, but there'll be new vaccines that come along as well. The next area that the author talks about is contributing to the demise of a civilization is randomness and bad luck. Statistical analysis on empire suggests that collapse is random and independent of age. Evolutionary biologist and data scientist uh, Indiri uh, Zambait uh, and her colleagues have observed a similar pattern in the evolutionary record of species. A common explanation for this apparent randomness is the, quote, red queen effect, end quote. And if, if species are constantly fighting for survival in a changing environment with numerous competitors, extinction is a consistent possibility. And certainly that describes the world in which we live in today. So despite the abundance of books and articles, we don't really have a conclusive explanation on uh, as to why civilizations collapse. What we do know is this, the factors highlighted above, the ones that I just went through, all uh, can all contribute uh, to a collapse of a civilization and collapse is a tipping point phenomenon when compounding stressors overrun societal coping capacity. Uh, and I think that that is what we are experiencing today. Now, the author says we can examine these indicators of danger and see if uh, our chance of collapse is falling or rising. And he gives four um, uh, possible metrics that we can look at. And those metrics are climate change, environmental impact, inequality, and complexity. Now, he says that climate change is certainly getting worse and has been on a dramatic uh, rise uh, since the mid-1970s. Uh, or 60s and 70s. He says that the environmental impact is certainly uh, getting worse uh, and complexity is also uh, on a steep rise. Now, he says that based on the metric that he used, which is a, an index called the uh, Gini index, that inequality uh, has fallen 
But I think that that is, as he explained, that is not an accurate way to determine it. But if you look at it from the perspective of the percentage of wealth owned by the top 1% of the world, then it is, then inequality is getting worse. And I think that is a better metric. So uh, on all of the danger signs are pointing to the fact that we are moving toward collapse. And, um, uh, he goes on to uh, to talk about um, a number uh, of the other factors that are, are showing that around those four metrics. Um, and uh, I, at the end, he makes a point that I think is very important. He says, worrying, and this is a quote, worryingly, the world is now deeply interconnected and interdependent. In the past, collapse was confined to regions. It was a temporary setback, and people often could easily return to an agrarian or hunter-gatherer lifestyle. For many, it was even a welcome reprieve from the oppression of early states. Moreover, the weapons available during social disorder were rudimentary swords, arrows, and occasionally guns. Today, societal collapse is more treacherous, is a more treacherous prospect. The weapons available to a state and sometimes even groups during a breakdown now range from biological agents to nuclear weapons, all of which have been used and and biological weapons have been used recently in Syria. Uh, And that was my comment. Uh, New instruments of violence such as lethal autonomous weapons may be available in the near future. People are increasingly specialized and disconnected from the production of food and basic goods, and a changing climate may irreparably damage our ability to return to a simple farming practice. And he goes on to say, think of civilization as a poorly built ladder. As you climb, each step that you used falls away, and a fall from the height of just a few rungs is fine, yet the higher you climb, then the larger the fall. Eventually, once you reach a sufficient height, any drop from the ladder is fatal. And the author concludes with this statement, we will only march into collapse if we advance blindly. We are only doomed if we are unwilling to listen to the past. Personally, I think we are doomed because I think we are unwilling to listen to the past. And I think we are marching into collapse completely blinded. So I did read another article as well that uh, went on to talk about the last thing that I talked about in the first article, which was the differences between uh, the uh, collapse that may happen now with the the collapses of civilizations that have happened in the past. And uh, on that article, the author stated that difference one was um, the fact that unlike previous civilizations, Modern industrial civilization is powered by an exceptionally rich, non-renewable and irreplaceable energy source, fossil fuels. And this unique energy base predisposes industrial civilization to a short uh, meteorotic lifespan of unprecedented boom and dramatic bust. That is, it is at some point we will run out of fossil fuels. And, and, and if we haven't made the change, to non-fossil fuel-based sources of energy, it is likely that things are going to collapse. The second difference he outlines is unlike past civilizations, the economy of an industrialized industrial society is capitalist. 
Production for profit is its prime directive and driving force. The unprecedented surplus energy supplied by fossil fuels has generated an exceptional growth and enormous profits over the last two centuries. But in the coming decades, these historic windfalls of abundant energy, constant growth and rising rising profits will vanish. However, he says, unless it is abolished, capitalism will not disappear when boom turns to bust. Instead, energy-starved, growthless capitalism will turn catabolic. And catabolism refers to the condition whereby a living thing devours itself. Uh, And as profitable sources of production dry up, capitalism will be compelled to turn a profit by consuming the social assets it once created. By cannibalizing itself, the profit motive will exacerbate industrial society's dramatic decline. The third difference he outlines is unlike past societies, industrial society civilization isn't Roman, Chinese, Egyptian, Aztec, or Mayan. Modern civilization is human, planetary, and it is uh, ecocidal, which means that it is destroying its own ecology. Humans have uh, become the most invasive species species ever known. Although we are a mere 0.01% of the planet's biomass, our domesticated crops and livestock dominate life on Earth. In terms of total biomass, 96% of all mammals on Earth are livestock, and only 4% are wild animals. He moves on to difference four. Human civilization... Uh, human civilization's collective capacity to confront its mounting crisis is crippled by a fragmented political system of antagonistic nations ruled by corrupt elites who care more about power and wealth than people and the planet. And I 100% agree with that definition. And it is not just the the government of the United States of America, but it is the governments all over the world. And the author goes on to say, yet this uh, fractious, fractured political system makes organizing and mounting a cooperative response nearly impossible. And the more catabolic, uh, catabolic uh, industrial capitalism becomes, the greater the danger that hostile rulers will fan the flames of nationalism and go to war over scarce resources. And of course, that's happening now. Uh, he goes on to say, of course, uh, warfare is not new, but modern warfare um, is is a bit different because it can be so devastating, destructive, and toxic that little would remain in its aftermath. This would be, uh, he says, the final nail in civilization's coffin. So uh, the bottom line for me is uh, the aspects and uh, uh, that I just went through uh, that exist uh, obviously in today's society seem to be pointing to the fact that we are accelerating our rush to catastrophe. And because of the things that were outlined, uh, um, uh, antagon- antagonistic um, and evil-minded political structures that are more bent on maintaining power than they are on trying to solve the world's problems, uh, to the point that they e- even ignore and, uh, and 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 basically deny that those problems exist uh, is going to make it so that it is unlikely that we will solve those problems before the end. So uh, I know that that is not an optimistic uh, point of view, but um, 
I guess it's not a comfort, but I don't think that the total collapse is going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but I do believe that the, that is the path that we are on. And whether it takes um, 50 years, 100 years or 500 years, I don't know. Uh, but the end result seems to be a global dark ages uh, from out of which um, we may never arise. So that's it for the topic, uh, what's on my mind. So we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll go through the news. So let's get through the news and let me try to get through it quickly so uh, I don't extend uh, this episode uh, too long. Uh, so first up, I, w- I wanted to review the fact uh, and update on the Ahmad Aubrey uh, murder case um, uh, where the uh, three Georgia men were, um, were charged um, in his death. Those three men have now been indicted on federal hate crime uh, and attempted kidnapping charges as well. And if you don't remember, then what the fuck is wrong with you? But um, if you don't remember, Ahmad Aubrey was a 25-year-old black man who was shot to death while jogging through a South Georgia neighborhood last year. And so the Justice Department had just uh, just announced on Wednesday that they would be also indicting those three men on federal hate crime and kidnapping charges. Now, the deadly encounter uh, helped to fuel nationwide racial justice protests last year. And as it had happened uh, shortly prior to the killing uh, of George Floyd, uh, and the charges are the most um, significant hate crimes prosecution so far by the Biden administration, uh, which the Biden administration has made civil rights protection a major priority. So the suspects in the killing of uh, Ahmad Aubrey or Travis McMichael, uh, 35, his father, Gregory McMichael, 65, and William uh, Roddy Bryan, who's 51. Uh, they each were charged with one count of interference with Mr. Aubrey's right to use a public street because of his race. And uh, also they were charged with one count of attempted kidnapping. Travis and Gregory McMichael are also charged with one count each of using and carrying and brandishing a firearm. And Travis McMichael is accused of shooting uh, Mr. Aubrey. Um, and the Justice Department released a statement that said, quote, as Aubrey was running on a public street in the Statilla Shores neighborhood of Brunswick, Georgia, Travis and Gregory McMichael armed themselves with firearms, got into a truck and chased Aubrey through the public streets of the neighborhood while yelling at him, using their truck to cut off his route and threatening him with firearms. Mr. Bryan joined the chase and used his truck to cut off Mr. Aubrey. Uh, the three men were accused of chasing Mr. Aubrey in their trucks in an attempt to restrain and detain him against his will. The case also prompted an outcry after news reports and video footage indicated that a local prosecutor had wrongly determined that the pursuers had acted within bounds of Georgia citizen arrest statute and that Mr. McMichael shot Aubrey in self-defense. 
Months after the February shooting, video surfaced that seemed to undercut the idea that Mr. McMichael acted in self-defense. The video showed Mr. Aubrey jogging, then coming upon a man standing beside a truck and another man in the pickup bed. After Mr. Aubrey runs around the truck, shouting is heard, and then he reappears, tussling with the man outside the truck, and three shotgun blasts are then fired. The prosecutor, George E. Barnhill, the district attorney for Georgia's Waycross Judicial Circuit, later recused himself from the case and the state took over the investigation. Um, the three men also faced state charges with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated ass assault, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit a felony. And no date has yet been set for trial. But I think that the fact that the Justice Department has gotten involved is a good thing. These motherfuckers need to be tried on every charge possible and convicted. All right, let's go to the next story, which is uh, just a, a, a brief review of Biden's uh, first um, address to the Joint Houses of Congress. And um, Biden stated, uh, quote, America's on the move again uh, in that uh, address to Congress that happened on Wednesday night. Uh, the speech came about 100 days into his presidency and was delivered to uh, a capital chamber with reduced occupancy as a result of the pandemic. Biden used his address to make the case for huge new investments and tax, tax reforms to overhaul the U.S. economy. President Biden took a moment to acknowledge the groundbreaking nature of Vice President Harris's position Harris, uh, of course, is the first woman and the first woman of color to, serve, to ever serve as vice president. And tonight is also the first time ever that two women, uh, Harris and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, are on the Diaz as president as the president delivers a joint address to Congress. So President Biden has taken some early steps to revive U.S. leadership and in global institutions. He has rejoined the Paris Climate Accord and has restored funding to the World Health Organization and other UN agencies. While critics say that the U.S. should push for more needed reforms first, the Biden team argues that the U.S. is better off having a seat at the table, adding that China and others filled the void when the Trump administration pulled out of international agreements. In his speech, President Biden touted his administration's accomplishments on things like rolling out the vaccine, passing the pandemic relief bill, uh, and starting the process of repairing uh, the country's damaged reputation. He gave credit to Republicans, though in my opinion, no credit was warranted as they voted against everything uh, that he came up with. And um, I have no doubt that, that President Biden is sincere and that he still believes that he can reach across the aisle and gain bipartisan support, but he's wrong. The Republicans are disingenuous, and they are only concerned about obtaining and or maintaining political power, and they will do anything necessary to achieve that goal, including burning down our democracy. And as I said in the segment, uh, What's on My Mind, including burning down and destroying civilization as we know it. Whatever they have to do to hold on to power, they will do. As evident of their duplicitous ways, they trotted out the fucking Tim Scott. Um, and I don't usually use the N-word, but I think he's a racist nigga from another mother uh, to give the rebuttal to, to Biden. 
And I'm not going to get tricked into mentioning uh, or quoting uh, what Tim Scott had to say because he he's just uh, a, a racist, uh, white supremacist black man that the Republican Party uh, wanted to trot out so that any of the policies and procedures that Biden talked about that could benefit black Americans, uh, they can have a black man uh, up there saying that um, it's not uh, not a good thing. Now, one thing that Scott said that I just cannot let go was he said that, quote, America is not a racist country, end quote. Bullshit, you stupid ass motherfucker. Shut the fuck up and get out of here. And also of note that idiot Kevin McCarthy uh, gave his take on Biden's address by repeating a debunked lie that Biden is trying to put a limit on how much meat Americans can eat. So we we have then in the Republican Party in the last several months, the Republicans have uh, defended racist cartoons in a children's book, claimed they supported a transgender children's toy, decried the cancel culture, though they're the biggest offenders, and confused Antifa, which is short for anti-fascism, and woke culture, which is vigilance in the light of racism, with something bad. So the Republicans have no agenda, no ideology, no morals, and no scruples. You cannot deal fairly and honestly with a band of fucking bandits. Okay, I said I wasn't going to quote Tim Scott, but um, someone else had a take on what he had to say. Uh, that is completely aligned with my point of view. So I am going to review this article on Tim Scott. Uh, this article comes from Black Star News. And it says, Uncle Tim Scott, uh, with his white masters, or shown with the, in a picture with his white, ma- white masters, Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham, was the, with the first headline. And it went on to say, Senator Tim Scott was at it again last night, faithfully executing his step-and-fetched mouthpiece duties for his white Republican handlers like Lindsey Graham and Senator Mitch McConnell. On Wednesday night, Scott was selected to deliver the Republican response to President Joe Biden's address to the nation. Among other objectionable statements, in a speech littered with lies and distortions, Scott made this particularly dishonest claim. Quote, America is not a racist country, end quote. Malcolm X warned us about these house Negro types who identify with their white masses to the point of even becoming sick when they are sick. Or as Malcolm put it, what's the matter, boss? We sick? The we here signifying that those black skinned disgraces to the race serve white patriarchy faithfully to the detriment of the masses of black people. How can any self-respecting black man claim America is not a racist country when it was built on racism? How can Scott make such an easily refutable statement when he had to endure the last four years under his president, Donald Trump, who has exacerbated racial divisions like no politician in our lifetime? In our lifetime, Scott is contemptible, corrupt, opportunistic liar. And uh, as he undercut his mendacious declaration by several things he said earlier in his speech, uh, for example, he said, I know what it feels like to be pulled over for no reason to be followed around the store while I'm shopping. Uh, Is Scott saying that when he was being pulled over by police or followed by uh, while black in a store that it wasn't because of institutional racism embedded deeply in American society? Perhaps he would argue that it was just one of a few bad apples. 
that the Republican Party is now so dependent on the votes of the most racist segments of America that Scott is asked to make these absurd pronouncements. Scott further negated his silly statement when he talked about his grandfather, saying, I remember every morning at the kitchen table, my grandfather would have the newspaper in his hands. Later, I realized that he had never learned to read. He just wanted to set the right example. Scott debunks his own argument with this anecdote. It seems that clear that enough that Scott's grandfather wanted him to have the benefit of an education that he never had. If not institutional racism, what prevented his grandfather from getting an education? Given the fact that Scott is negotiating now with Democrats on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, we should worry about a watered-down version of the bill that will do little to stop racial uh, policing. Scott is now being given prominence by Republicans because he is an unprincipled man who can be employed to advance their regressive racist agenda while pandering around in black skin. Why else did they choose him to deliver the Republican response? Why else is he being used to negotiate on the George Floyd policing bill? Scott is also being is is also being used so Republicans and their ultra white cultish followers can say there's no racism. And even our good boy, black, black boy, Tim Scott said so. Most of Scott's rebuttal of the Joe Biden message last night was pure garbage. He gainly gallingly claimed Biden had failed to bring racial unity to the country. Scott said nothing when Trump engaged in any number of racist statements, including after being told by Lindsey Graham about Trump's uh, infamous labeling of African-American nations as, quote, shithole countries, end quote. How dare Scott criticize Biden for anything when when he has even made excuses for Trump's attempt on January 6th to overturn American democracy because they wanted to nullify the votes of black Americans and other non-white people. But what else should we expect from black skin sellouts like Uncle Tom, Tim Scott, who peddles the propaganda lies of their white puppet masters? So I agree with everything that that um, uh, article Arthur said about Tim Scott. He's a fucking disgrace. And uh, hopefully uh, he can be voted out of office or something. Maybe he'll he'll get the coronavirus and die or something or whatever negative happens to him would be cause for celebration. All right, let's go to the next story. Um, uh, execution style uh, is how the family of Andrew Brown uh, describes the uh, the body cam footage that they were able to view. So again, if you don't uh, remember, Andrew Brown Jr. was shot and killed by deputies from the uh, Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office on April 21st, 2021. The family said that he was killed, quote, execution style, end quote, by police after seeing a portion of the body cam footage. And if you've been seeing the news, uh, the local sheriff there has prevented the body cam footage from being made public. You don't have to stretch your imagination much to uh, to start to think about why that might be the case. It has to be the case because it's damning to the police. Uh, and or because they want more time to be able to doctor it up and cut it up and and make it appear to be something that it's not. So uh, in in this case, uh, seven deputies have been placed on leave uh, after the shooting. 
Um, on Monday, Brown's family met with local officials to see the body camera footage from the shooting, but they say they were only shown a 20-second clip. Uh, uh, BNC's uh, Alfred Martinez spoke to Brown's cousin about what the family saw in the video. And uh, one of the cousins said, quote, the first word that comes to my mind is execution style. They killed my cousin, he said. According to NBC News, Brown family attorney uh, Chantel Cherry Lassiter said that the video showed Brown in his car blocked in the driveway by deputies. He said, quote, Andrew had his hands on his steering wheel. He was not reaching for anything. He wasn't touching anything, she said. He said he had his hands firmly on the steering wheel. They run up to his vehicle shooting. He still stood there, sat there in his vehicle with his hands on the steering wheel while they began to shoot at him. So Brown's death certificate says that he died from a gunshot wound to the head. So we'll have to wait and see what comes out of that and whether or not the full body cam video will be released to the public um, in an undoctored and uncorrupted state. So next, and we're kind of on a theme here this week with the news, uh, the death of uh, Marvin uh, David Scott III has been ruled a homicide. So uh, uh, Marvin David Scott III is a a 26-year-old black man uh, who was first arrested arrested and taken to Texas, a Texas detention facility in March, and ended up dead, has been ruled a homicide. Um, Dr. William Rohr, the medical examiner in Collin County, said Wednesday that Scott's death was caused by, quote, fatal acute stress response in an individual with previously diagnosed schizophrenia, schizophrenia during restraint struggle with law enforcement, end quote, according to CBS News. Rohr said his office is waiting to obtain laboratory results before releasing the final autopsy report. Um, I got this from uh, a news source called The Root, and as The Root uh, previously reported, Scott was arrested by police officers uh, with the Allen Police Department on March 14th, who claimed he was acting in an erratic manner at a local mall. From there, Scott was transported to a hospital where and held in an emergency room, uh, quote, due to the possible ingestions of drugs, end quote. Scott was arrested for having less than two ounces of marijuana on him. Uh, And this is the messed up part. It goes into a a bigger conversation over marijuana legalization. Uh, But the author says he I digress with that. So he was then transferred, though. Scott was then transferred to a detention facility in Collin County at 622 p.m., um, and there's more information that came from CBS News. CBS News said um, uh, that Scott began exhibiting, or the police said Scott began uh, exhibiting strange behavior in the booking area at some point after he arrived, but he, the, the police officer didn't elaborate on what he meant by that. When several officers struggled to secure him to a restraint bed, they developed uh, or deployed pepper spray and once uh, placed a spit mask, a covering with netted fabric designed to prevent a person from spitting on officers, uh, spitting in officers' face. So uh, Scott became unre- unresponsive while being placed on the restraint bed. And at approximately 10.22 p.m., Skinner said that he, um, the police officer, that is, said that he immediately received care but was later pronounced dead at the local facility. 
But that's the cop's perspective. What the, what the family says is that they watched nearly five hours of footage, including the video of his death. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the family's attorney, Lee Merritt, said that the footage showed repeated opportunities to provide aid to Scott, who he said was clearly in a schizophrenic episode. Instead, he received brutality, Merritt said. Instead, he was maced, he was assaulted, he was restrained, he was treated as someone who was being criminally non-compliant, not as someone in need of desperate help. The sheriff's office had records of Scott's mental health issues, according to Merritt, uh, but the police declined to comment on whether the officers knew he had a history of mental illness. So Scott's uh, mother, Lysandra, said that the footage was horrific, inhumane, and very disheartening. Um, Another family member shared her feelings by saying, quote, when I was watching this, I felt like I wanted to be there for him, but I couldn't. It was too late. And, you know, I think that that is the feeling that a lot of us felt when we watched the footage of George Floyd and when we see all of this other footage that continues to come out about unarmed black men and women being brutalized, beaten, pepper sprayed and murdered by the police. All right, the next story, I just want to give a quick update on the coronavirus statistics. Um, Coronavirus cases are just under 33 million in the U.S. Uh, The deaths are just under 600,000 at uh, or under five, just under 590,000 at 588,000. And new deaths, um, this uh, just uh, two days ago was just under 1,000 at 954, which is a slight rise from where it was a few days, a few, uh, about a week before. Uh, as I have been doing, I do want to talk about a specific individual. And th- this week, it's uh, Jeremiah Timothy Trusty, uh, who was born on November the 6th, 1982, in Media, Pennsylvania, west of Philadelphia, and raised in nearby uh, uh, Booth Boothman. His mother is a retired salesperson for DuPont, and his father, Raymond, was a postal carrier. And um, uh, Jeremiah sang in his church choir and earned a bachelor's degree in communication from Wheaton College near Chicago, where he played basketball and an athletic scholarship. After graduating in uh, 2004, he worked for two years uh, operating rides at Walt Disney World in Florida, then spent two years playing basketball in Japan for Crusaders for Christ while singing in the group. All of his endeavor, of all his, his endeavors, singing was the most important. He had recently recorded a song that he hoped would be his breakthrough. He died of COVID-19. So again, when we say that there's 588,000 people that have died, we're not just talking statistics. We're not just talking numbers. We're talking about real live human beings. And this was a black man uh, who uh, had just recorded a song, who felt that he was on his way to live uh, the rest of his life. uh, And instead he contracted this deadly disease and died from it. All right. Well, I'd like to end the news this week by going over the store, uh, the story of a black uh, pastor out of Washington, D.C., who is accused of fraud uh, because he bought a Tesla uh, and some other things with a PPP loan uh, with a with a scam that he had for that. And if you remember PPP, 
uh, its payroll protection plan. So it was meant to uh, be money that was given to business organizations to uh, allow them to stay afloat um, um, while the, while COVID had shut them down. Uh, by no means whatsoever should churches have received any of this fucking money. Uh, but the fucking Trump administration made sure that not only did they get it, but they were prioritized over legitimate businesses for this this money. So anyway, this week, uh, federal prosecutors are looking to seize millions of dollars in a luxury car from Washington, D.C. pastor after he applied and received funding last year from a pandemic era small business support program. Rudolph Brooks, J- Brooks Jr., the pastor of Kingdom Tabernacle of Restoration, was accused of submitting fraudulent information through the payroll protection program uh, with a business registered in Maryland under his name. The program is a loan service designed by the federal government to encourage revenue-losing businesses to keep their workers on payroll amid business closures during the coronavirus pandemic. Warrants were obtained to seize $2.2 million from Brooks' bank accounts and a 2018 Tesla Model 3. According to a press release, release from U.S. Attorney's Office, District of Maryland, Brooks 45 was arrested on April the 2nd. The office alleges that Brooks applied for a PPP loan on behalf of a car purchasing and selling company under his ownership called Cars Direct. The government requires the PPP funds be used to pay employees, mortgage, interest, uh, rent, and utilities, but prosecutors claim Brooks enriched himself. He is also accused of attempting to obtain additional funding from the program on at least two other occasions. The Griot, which is the place where I received this story, reached out to Brooks and Kingdom Tab- Tabernacle for comment. The publication did not receive a response upon the time of the article, the time this article was published. Prosecutors claim Brooks applied to borrow nearly $1.6 million in May of 2020, a loan that was approved and distributed to a bank account in his name. The application included fraudulent tax forms reporting hundreds of thousands of dollars in business expenses, the release said. In an affidavit affidavit, uh, uh, supporting the complaint, the Internal Revenue Service and Maryland Department of Labor, however, claimed that Cars Direct had no employees on file nor paid any wages. After the funds were received, Brooks transferred some of the money into a bank account he set up in the name of uh, of payroll by BM, BJM, that account also was not associated with any payroll or payroll-related expenses, prosecutors say. It is believed that this um, uh, this account was opened because it creates the appearance that the account is being associated with a payroll company, according to the press release. Money was also transferred to a personal bank accounts, according to the complaint. Brooks allegedly made payments on his credit card bills at restaurants, grocery stores, and auto auctioneers. Money was used to buy dozens of used cars, including the Tesla, Mercedes-Benz, a Cadillac Escalade, among others, prosecutors said. As a result of the criminal investigation, warrants have been issued for the seizure of Brooks' accounts, as well as the Tesla. Should Brooks be convicted, he could face a maximum of 20 years in federal prison for wire fraud. PPP loans were made available to small business owners as part of the coronavirus 
Aid and Relief and Economic Security, or CARES Act, as a result of business shutdowns caused by COVID-19. So this uh, fucking uh, uh, pastor uh, has been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He was stealing from his flock and should have continued to do that because that's legal. Uh, but then he tried to steal from the government. And because he was black, I'm sure there are white people that stole from the government. Nothing is going to happen to them. But because he's black, um, he's going to go to jail. Uh, but I have no sympathy for the bitch. So uh, good riddance to him. Okay, so um, uh, that's uh, it for the news. So we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to this segment. This shit is for us. Welcome back. So as I said in the intro, um, this segment of This Shit is for Us um, is about the Republican attack on, quote, woke culture, end quote, and how it is based uh, 100% on racism. And if you look at it, the racist right has responded to every push toward racial justice, equality, inclusion, and fairness by turning the words and ideas of the movements um, associated with those things um, against the proponents by using the Orwellian technique of changing the meaning of words. It's like love is hate, war is peace, etc. They did this with politically correct, making it a bad thing. Antifa, which, as I said before, stands for anti-fascism. So they are against anti-fascism, which just means they're for fascism. And now they're also doing it with the word woke or woke culture. So um, one of uh, uh, Erica Badu's uh, best albums uh, from, in my mind, uh, which is America KKK1, uh, she asked the question, what if there were no niggas, only master teachers? And the response was, I stay woke. Um, so before 2014, the call to stay woke was for many people unheard of. The idea behind it was common within ba black communities at that point. The notion that staying woke, uh, which was alert to the deceptions of other people, was a b basic survival tactic. But in 2014, following the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, stay woke suddenly became the cautionary watchword of Black Lives Matter activists on the streets used in a chilling and specific context. Keep watch for police brutality and unjust police tactics. In the six years since Brown's death, woke has evolved into a single word summation of left leftist political ideology centered on social justice politics and critical race theory. This framing of woke is bipartisan. It is used as shorthand for political progressiveness by the left and is a denigration of less leftist culture by the right. On the left, to be woke means to identify a staunch social justice advocate who's abreast of contemporary political concerns or to be perceived that way, whether or not you ever claim to be woke yourself. 
At times, the defensiveness surrounding wokeness invites ironic blowback. Consider the 2020 Hulu comedy series Woke, which attempted to deconstruct the identity politics behind ideas like wokeness, only to garner criticism for having an outdated and too centrist political viewpoint, that is, for not being woke enough. On the other, um, on the right, rather, uh, woke, uh, like its cousin, canceled, bespeaks political correctness gone awry, and the term itself is usually used sarcastically. At the Republican National Convention in August, uh, fucking Matt Gates, who is in all kinds of trouble now, and uh, more trouble just came out uh, this week that he's in uh, as um, his co- his his friend and co-conspirator, uh, ev- evidently has provided um, a, a sworn statement that uh, that Matt Gates uh, did in fact pay uh, for sex with an underage girl. Um, but um, it, and the uh, in the Republican National Convention in August, uh, Gates scolded quote Woketopians end quote grouping them together with socialist and Biden supporters as though the definition of a Woketopian was self-evident. But as use of the word spreads, what people actually mean by woke seems to be less clear than ever. After all, none of these recent political concepts has anything to do with the idea of demanding that people stay woke against police brutality. Uh, Despite renewed activism against police brutality in 2020, the way that terms like woke and wokeness are used outside of Black Lives Matter community seems to bear little connection to their original context on either the right or the left. Shifting a Black Lives Matter slogan away from its original meaning is arguably the least woke thing ever. Yet that seems to be just what happened with, of all things, woke itself. To understand how woke came to stand for an entire political ideology, it's helpful to trace how the term traveled so far and wide within the American mainstream and what the journey reveals about a polarized society. The first time many people heard the quote, the word quote, woke, end quote, in its current context was likely during the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement. In 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, black citizens took to the streets nightly to protest the police shooting death of Michael Brown. As they did so, they urged each other to, quote, stay woke against police actions and other threats. But woke and the phrase stay woke had already been part of black communities for years long before Black Lives Matter gained prominence. While renewed international outcry over anti-black police violence certainly fueled widespread and mainstream usage of the word in the present, it has a much longer history. Dondre Miles Hercules, a doctoral linguist researcher at the University of California, Santa Barbara, said, The earliest known examples of wokeness as a concept revolved around the idea of black consciousness, i.e. waking up uh, to a new reality or to an activist framework that dates back to the early 20th century. In 1923, a collection of aphorisms and ideas by the Jamaican philosopher and social activist Marcus Garvey included the summons, Wake Up Ethiopia, Wake Up Africa, as a call to global black citizens to become more socially and politically conscious. A few years later, the phrase stay woke turned up as part of a spoken afterward in the 1938 song Scottboro Boys, 
a protest song by blues uh, musician uh, Lead Belly. The song described the 1931 saga of a group of nine black teenagers in Scottboro, Arkansas, who were accused of raping a white woman. Lead Belly says at the end of an archival recording of the song that he met with the Scottboro defendant's lawyer who introduced him to the men themselves. And Lead Belly said, quote, I made this little song about down there, end quote. And he said, quote, I, so I advise everybody, be a little careful when you go along through there. Best stay woke. Keep your eyes open, end quote. So Lead Belly uses stay, quote, an explicit association with black Americans need to be aware of racially motivated threats and potential dangers of white America. Lead Belly's usage has largely stayed the common consistent one ever since, including during the notable brush with the mainstream in 1962 via the New York Times. That year, a young black novelist named William Melvin Kelly wrote a first-person piece for the Times called If You're Woke, You Dig It. No Mickey Mouse can be expected to follow today's Negro idiom without a hip assist. In that piece, Kelly points out that the origins of the language of then-fashionable beatnik culture, words like cool and dig, lay not within white America, but with black Americans, predominantly among black jazz musicians. Kelly's piece doesn't explain what woke might mean, but his argument implies to be woke is to be socially conscious black, a socially conscious black American. Someone aware of the ephemeral nature of black vernacular who might actively be shifting that vernacular away from white people who would exploit it or change its meaning. The Negro pride in this idiom is that of a man who watches someone else do ineptly what he can do so so well. The Negro laughs at white people who try to use his language. He experiences the same glee when he witnesses a white audience at a jazz concert clapping on their first and third beat. The American Negro feels that he can, on the spur of the moment, create the most exciting language that exists in any English-speaking country today. I asked someone what they felt about white people trying to... to uh, trying to or t- trying to us hip language, he said, man, they blew the gig just by being being great. Uh, Kelly's description suggests that to be woke is to have a native relationship to black language, culture and knowledge of social issues that arise in our lived experiences. Miles Hercules told me singling out Kelly's piece as an example of the connection of woke had even in the 60s to its current political connotations. Given that the oldest known introduction of woke to the mainstream comes in 1962 opinion piece about how white Americans are always appropriating black vernacular, it's almost as though the word uh, predicts its own fate. Kelly argued that because black Americans know their language is constantly being appropriated, the language itself is constantly changing. By the time they use these, by the time these terms get into mainstream, he observed, new new ones have already appeared. Negroes guard the idiom so fervently that they will consciously invent invent a new term as soon as they hear the existing one coming from a white person's lips. So 
the, the linguistic subterfuge seems to be how woke the concept and the word itself flew under the mainstream culture's radar for what seems to have been decades, uh, and not until the late, um, uh, uh, like uh, ni- the late uh, 90s with the rise of social media and a few prominent artists did wokeness begin to steady uh, proper push against the broader American consciousness. Uh, although woke is a watchword is the term's earliest uh, known usage, it took on three primary contexts within black communities during the 20th century. One, a slang for being literally awake. Two, a slang for being sus- suspicious of a cheating romantic partner, and third, the original politically charged uses, usage of always being on the lookout for a systemic injustice. In a 2017 interview um, with Oki Player, funk singer Georgia Ann Muldray describes first hearing the term used by 60s jazz musicians in its most literal context as a slang for not falling asleep. Uh, Mudrow carried... Um, stay woke forward in a crucial way, she wrote, and recorded an unreleased version of a song, Master Teacher, with the refrain, I Stay Woke, in reference to the 60 jazz musicians of yore. Mudrow's usage inadvertently contributed to the term's political meaning, getting a boost when in 2018, or 2008 rather, R&B artist uh, Erica Badu released an updated version of Master Teacher on her political theme album, New America Part 1, which is uh, what I quoted at the beginning. Badu's, ver- Badu's version of the song simplified Mudrow's I Stay Woke to um uh or i i'd stay woke to i stay woke used in all three of the aforementioned contexts at once um uh, again erica baidu says even if your baby ain't got no money to support your baby i stay woke even when the preacher tells you some lies and cheating on your mama you stay woke even though you go through the struggle and strife to keep a healthy life i stay woke I have a long, uh, I have longed to stay awake, a beautiful world I'm trying to find. After the release of Badu's song, I Stay Woke gained increasing use among black social media as uh, users commenting on current events, often harkening back to its original political meaning. So what this article is saying is that um, the Republicans are are using the woke now to say that being vigilant in the face of racism uh, is a process gone too far. So they make it a bad thing. And what the article is saying is that even on the left, uh, now uh, white politicians are saying that they're woke uh, when they don't even know the fucking meaning of the word. So uh, we don't really get any respect from the left or the right on this, but the right is using it uh, against us and against the left. Uh, and so I think their duplicitous nature is far more harmful than the uh, desire of uh, the whites to hold on to something that isn't theirs. All right. So that's um, it for this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. And um, I didn't say it in the beginning, but again, uh, this segment, This Shit Is For Us, is by me, a black man, for my black brothers and sisters. But um, if you were uh, not black, but you still listen to it, that's fine. But there may be some components to it that you don't agree with or you don't understand because it's a black thing. 
All right, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll get to uh, a minute Bible study with Atheist Mike. So, as I said in uh, the intro, um, the, uh, the, the uh, text that I am taking today, um, as it relates to Bible study, is uh, when God says, fuck a bitch, he means to follow through. So, you might be wondering how the hell did I come up with that as it relates to something in the Bible. Well, what I want to talk about is the story of Judah and his son, uh, and uh, just some more supposedly moral shit from the Bible that is anything but. So we're going to take our our text uh, uh, today from Genesis chapter 38, uh, 38 and I'll just uh, go through and read uh, the verses and we'll provide my own commentary. So Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain uh, uh, Dulamite whose name was Hera. Now, uh, Judah is one of the sons of Jacob. And, um, of course, uh, like we'll get in with Judah, uh, Jacob had fucked a bunch of different women. So he was... He was one of the sons of one woman, but uh, but Jacob had a bunch of other uh, children by by other women as well. Uh, but it, this is like talking about uh, some things that had happened uh, in verse thirty seven, and after that, then it's saying Judah went down uh, from his brethren, uh, and and what it was talking about is when. Uh, they had um, uh, threw their brother into a pit and he had been um, uh, sold to the Egyptians. But anyway, so Judah was went down and came to an Adullamite whose name was Hera. And verse two, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Sua, and he took her and went into her. So, um, so, so what is that saying? You know what went into her means. So, Judah saw a woman like, damn, that bitch is fine. So he hit it. Uh, and it doesn't say that it was with her consent. So the motherfucker probably raped her. Uh, and she conceived and bore a son and he called uh, his name Ur. Uh, and she conceived again and bare a son and he called his name Onan. Uh, and she yet uh, again conceived and bare a son and called his name uh, Shelah. And he was at uh, Chizib when she bare him. And now we're down to verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, whose name was uh, Tamar. And Ur, uh, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, the Bible doesn't say what the fuck that uh, Ur did, just that, that God didn't like him. He's like, God looked at him and hated that motherfucker, so God killed him. Uh, it doesn't say exactly how he killed him or what happened, but it says that God just didn't fucking like Ur, so he took that motherfucker out. And so then, uh, what? So so Judah then says to his next oldest son Onan, "Go fuck your brother's wife and marry her and raise up a seed to thy brother." So 
And it does say that in that order. And now, of course, the way that the verse reads, verse eight is, and Judas said unto Onan, go into thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up a seed to thy brother. But it says to fuck her first before he even marry her. So uh, basically, it, it appears that what uh, Judah was saying is to, to Mary is like, I picked her out for for her because she was a fine ass bitch. And uh, why don't you hit that too, uh, son Onan? Um, and so, but Onan, the, verse 9, and Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. So, uh, basically, what Onan did was to practice the uh, pull-out method uh, for both birth control, and he agreed with his father Judah that, yes, that bitch is fine, and I do want to fuck her, but I don't want any goddamn kids, especially not since you're just going to claim as my brother's child and give him all the shit uh, that I should be getting anyway or that my kids should get. And so uh, verse 10, and the thing he did uh, displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. So it's like God I said, I didn't fucking like your older brother, Ur, and now you fucked this bitch but didn't have a baby, so I don't like you either, and he killed uh, him as well. So, uh, and so, uh, then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till, uh, Selah, my son grow, be grown for, he said, less preadventure, he die also as his brothers, brothers did. And Tamar went out and dwelt in her father's house. So what is Judah saying? Judah is saying like, God damn, every motherfucker that fucks this bitch dies. So I don't want my last only youngest son to, to go fuck her because he's probably going to die too. So I'm just telling this bitch to go stay with your father. We, I don't have any more fun sons for your ass. And so, um, and in the process of time, the daughter of uh, Sua, Judah's wife, died and Judah was uh, comforted and went up into his sheep shears to uh, Timnath and he and his friend Hera and the Adamite. So basically his wife died, Judah's wife died, uh, and he went up to where he had some sheep. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to, to Timnath to shear his sheep. And so she put uh, her winnow garments off, uh, now, why she would still be wearing widow garments after that length of time, I have no idea, uh, and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and set in an open place, uh, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Selah was grown. That is, that she she knew that Judah's youngest son, who she was supposed to get to fuck, uh, was grown, but Judah hadn't let him fuck her yet. And so she was and had not uh, she had not been married off to Sheila. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a fucking hoe. So that's uh, verse 15. Judah saw her. He thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. I guess whenever women were out on the hoe stroll back then, they covered their face. And so since her face was covered, so she didn't want Judah to know who she was. He thought she was a hoe. Now, what do you think the man of God says when he sees a prostitute on the side of the road? Um, here's what here's what Judah said, verse 16. And he turned to her by the way and said, go, I pray thee, let me come unto thee. So let me fuck you 
for he knew not that it was his daughter-in-law. So it doesn't really matter, though, that it, it does it make it OK that he said, can I fuck you because it, he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law? Why is fucking a hoe so supposedly a good thing in the Bible? So what did she say? And she said, what will thou give me that thou mayest come into me? So what she was saying is, look, this pussy might be reasonable, but it's not free, motherfucker. What you got going on uh, if I let you fuck me? And so uh, what did Judas say? He said, I will give thee a kid from the flock. And uh, so he's like, I'll give you one of my sheep. Uh, I don't know how much money that would have been in today's dollars, but sounds like he was only working with like 50 bucks or something. But anyway, she said, uh, wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? So it's like, yeah, you talking about giving me something later, motherfucker. I need or what I what can I hold now to make sure I get my goddamn sheep? Uh, and he said, what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet, so his ring and thy, thy bracelet and thy staff that is in thy hand. And he gave it to her because he was like, this bitch is fine as fuck and got a nice ass body. And I definitely want to hit that shit. So I'll give her whatever she's asking for. Uh, and I'll get it back once I send her a goddamn sheep. So uh, verse 18 says he fucked her and uh, got and she got knocked up. So she got pregnant by him. So some other shit happened in the in in uh, the verses past verse 18, but I'm not going to it's not germane to my point. Um, uh, essentially, it's talking about some haters went and told on uh, Tamara and said that she had gotten uh, knocked up uh, pregnant uh, by by some asshole who wasn't married to her. And so Judas like bring that bitch to me so that she can die fucking the whole who uh, just going around fucking anybody. Uh, and so he, he brought it, uh, they brought her to him and he asked the question, what motherfucker fucked you for money and got you all knocked up? And she said, the same person who, uh, owns this staff and this signet, uh, uh, et cetera. And he was like, oh shit, that's mine. It's like, God damn, that was a hole that I fucked. So, uh, so of course he couldn't kill her after that, but the thing now, some believers say that this scripture means that the only reason to to fuck uh, is to have kids, which is why God killed Onan, uh, J Judah's son. Uh, but it, and if you don't, uh, if you're fucking for for fun, then uh, you're gonna get killed. But obviously, that can't be true because God didn't kill Judah when he fucked when he thought he was paying for it. And obviously, you're not just paying for some shit just to have kids. Uh, I mean, he he did knock up the bitch, but uh, I don't think that's what he had in mind. He just wanted to fuck her. Um, and he, he he just was going raw dog for fun. It wasn't about uh, about making uh, any children. Um, and but there's really no morally coherent reason for Onan to die. There's no reason even given for her dying. Uh, other than the fact that God hated the little bitch and, uh, and and didn't like the fact that his brother pulled his dick out uh, when fucking his his uh, sister-in-law uh, and didn't give her a baby. So the Bible is a collection of nonsense with rules that don't make any sense, even within the time frame that it was fucking written. And it certainly doesn't make any sense today. All right. So uh, that's it for this week's um, uh, Bible study minute with Atheist Mike. So when we come back, we'll close out the podcast.
right, welcome back. Uh, as I had mentioned in the intro, I just want to go over uh, this quick story. It's actually not uh, that recent. Um, it was announced last week, uh, but I do think that it is a, a good way to end the podcast this week. So what I want to talk about is a Nigerian-American uh, who joined the Biden cabinet. Uh, so uh, the Senate um, uh, last month confirmed uh, Wale Ademo as the first uh, black deputy tre uh, treasury secretary, secretary in America. Uh, Ademo uh, is the latest to join the Biden administration, um, uh, aiding uh, Treasury Secretary, secretary Janet Yellen as the first woman to hold that role. While he is everything that the Treasury Department needs right now, he has spent his career working at the intersection of Americans' national security interests and our economic ones. In the process, he's become a master of shuttle economic diplomacy, helping keep America's economy strong at home and competitive abroad, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen stated. While he is also a tireless advocate for the working class, he helped build the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from its foundations after the Great Recession. Those values and that managerial experience will be a tremendous, a tremendous asset to Treasury now as we continue implementing the American Rescue Plan. Uh, again, that was by Janet Yellen, uh, who is the uh, Treasury Secretary. So, um, uh, Odame was, uh, first, um, uh, was the first, um, uh, uh, well, he first, the, was the president of Obama's foundation, uh, and also served during the Obama administration as a deputy national, uh, national security advisor for international, uh, economics from 2015 to 2016 and the deputy director of the national, um, economic council. Um, uh, Ademo was born to a Yoruba parents in Nigeria and raised in Southern California. His father was a teacher and his mother was a nurse. He has a younger, uh, two younger siblings. Um, and after graduating from Eisenhower High School in Rialto, California in 1999, he received a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of California, Berkeley in 2004 and a Juris Doctorate degree from Yale Law School in 2009. During his time at the University of California, Berkeley, he played um, uh, defensive back for the Bears uh, football program. So um, in November 2020, it was announced that Ademo would be nominated to serve as United States De Deputy Secretary of Treasury in the Biden administration. And on January the 20th, 2021, his nomination was submitted to the Senate for confirmation. A hearing before the Senate Committee on Finance was held on February the 23rd, 2020, 2021, and he was confirmed by the committee by voice vote on March the 3rd, 2021, and by the full U.S. Senate on March 25th, 2021. So congratulations uh, to uh, Ademo, Ademo, and um, good to see that uh, Nigerian Americans are uh, also making inroads into uh, politics and, and through the Biden administration. All right, that is it for this week's episode of the Rational Black Thought Podcast. Uh, I'd like to remind you that the intro music is Transcend by KIRK, and the outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available, again, on Apple Podcasts, 
It's available on Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and many other platforms. If it's not available on the platform that you get your podcast, uh, send me a note at feedback at rationalblackthought.com, and I will get it added to your platform. Please go to your platform and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, and if it's possible, leave me a five-star review. Generally speaking, I end the podcast with a quote uh, from Frederick Douglass, but I want to end this time with a different poem by uh, McKay, uh, because I think that it is appropriate. Um, and uh, I, I believe that um, one of my listeners, Sandy, um, a university professor, had said that she didn't particularly like this poem. If I remembered that correctly, uh, let me know, Sandy. Um, and if I miss, uh, uh, if I misremembered that, then let me know that as well. But this poem is If We Must Die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious lot, while round about us bark the man and hungry dogs, making their mock of our accursed lot. If we must die, if we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave. And for their thousand blows, deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.